As much progress as United have seemed to make over the last month, this weekend's Manchester Derby reminded us that there's still a long way to go. On this week's Devils in the Details, we welcome special guest Carl Anka to discuss the game and what went wrong before giving us a third perspective on the season so far. Case, I'm really excited for this one, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've been thinking about trying to get Carl to come on since we started the podcast, so uh, it should be a fun conversation. Awesome. So without further ado, it's time to introduce our very special guest for the week. If you're listening to this, you almost definitely know who Carl Anka is, but just in case, Carl is a Manchester United reporter at The Athletic, which means not only does he do everything from news to analysis to interviews to match coverage there... He's also one of the best in the world at it. He has also written a series of critically acclaimed motivational children's books with Manchester United's September Player of the Month, Marcus Rashford. Anyone who follows my football work closely knows that Carl is one of my favorite people in the space, and I'm sure Case would say the same. Carl constantly shows curiosity about the game in his work and cuts through the discourse by challenging widespread opinions with evidence that suggests otherwise. As I've gotten to know him a bit, I've learned that he's also a truly lovely guy with so many different interests. We got to know Carl because he engages heavily in the football community online, both giving a platform and his time to up-and-coming people in the content creation sphere. He's personally inspired a huge proportion of my work and given me time when he totally didn't have to. And that includes today. So, Carl, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Wow, I feel a lot better for that best man speech. Oh my goodness, I'm flattered. (laughs) Afternoon, gentlemen. How are we doing? Good, good. Again, thanks for coming on, Carl. Uh, We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Well, this is definitely a a sweetener after yesterday's whatever that was. (laughs) Yeah, whatever (laughs) that was. But I guess we have to talk about the whatever that was. So let's start with that. The Derby. In short, uh, let's start with the kind of a summary and then maybe dig deeper. Uh, I'll go to Case first, but given there's three of us, feel free to interject at any time. Case, what went wrong? That's a loaded question. I don't know. I don't think we have enough time to cover all of it. It was a poor execution of a naive plan. That's that's the that's the most succinct way I I can I can put that. You went into a war with one of the best teams in the country, if not Europe, if not the world, and you hoped to play them in somewhat of an equal footing in some areas, right? Now you, you can't match Manchester City 11 for 11. But when you play Manchester City, you want to match or outwork them in at least two or three areas. Uh, and I think Eric Ten Hag, based on how victory over Arsenal and to a lesser degree how victory over Liverpool was gained, thought he could get an advantage in two or three key areas and went, that would work. And then the rest will be the rest. What happened very early on is that those two or three key areas that he hoped to to match Manchester City were just impossible. Just complete miscalculation. You can call it a miscalculation or uh, an unforeseen variable, but part of that plan against Manchester City was involved on his central midfield pairing being able to match or, or... Matching, if not in effort, but in energy, the central midfield pairing of Manchester City, and that just wasn't the case. It, it, it was there was a huge chasm there. Uh, I think part of the plan hoped that Terrell Malassia's endeavour and energy on the left hand side, and Diego Dallo's interesting energy and endeavour. I call it interesting not because I don't think it's good or bad, but because I still can't quite quantify it. I think Ten Hag believed that those his fullbacks would be able to. You know, maybe not win every single battle, but win at least half of those battles. And that didn't happen whatsoever. Uh, and then a, what could have been a near equal playing field very quickly becomes a deeply lopsided one. And then you're just trying to run uphill. And when you're playing uphill against Manchester City, you get got. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I think if you had to point at where things broke down, I would point at the midfield pivot and the fullbacks predominantly. Um I'm not sure I would go 
I mean, maybe it was naive. It's not the wording I would choose, but playing Ericsson was definitely a mistake. Are you sure? Is playing Ericsson or not playing Casemiro? Because those are two different things that are linked. I was going to... So, uh, yeah. So, that, that's that's a, a good point. I think I, I said to Aaron on the pod last week that I wouldn't be surprised if Casemiro and McTominay had played in this match. And the reason I said that is because Holland has actually been dropping off the back line a lot for City this season and sort of playing, not in the half spaces, but playing as a like a, a target man who's, who's with no one on his back and then just laying passes off. Um, and the thing with having Ericsson in that midfield pivot when you do that is he's going to be responsible for having, like getting his body on Holland and then following him. And the thing is he can, can neither get his body on Holland nor follow him in space. Um, and so it just made things really easy in front of the back four. Um, and so, yeah, maybe whether you want to say you should have played Ericsson with Casemiro, or whether you want to say Ericsson shouldn't have been in this match, or at least maybe higher up the pitch, uh, I'm not sure. But I think maybe the key breakdown was that Ericsson just got ran all over the pitch. Um, and, and yeah, that probably wouldn't have happened to Casemiro. Interesting. I'm not sure I would have gone with Casemiro and McTominay, but I, I get principally the issues with playing Ericsson that deep. I think the other thing is when you play the City team, um, they wear so many different hats that it's very difficult to kind of just rely on two pivot members being able to control that entire sort of final third-ish outside-the-box area. Um, and what I found is, especially in transitions, you saw players like Jack Grealish being able to carry at them. And either you give Grealish space, which is fatal, or you kind of try to close Grealish down and then open up options for, for other players, which is how the Holland back post goal happens, because both Eriksen and McTominay try to close down Grealish in transition, and it totally opens up De Bruyne, which is obviously going to end up in giving him time and space to pick out a pass that... He plays a hundred times a season under no pressure whatsoever. So I actually think the key failure on that goal happens way before De Bruyne even gets the ball. We're actually engaged higher up the pitch in a pressing situation, but something about the pressing situation makes no sense. And it's that McTominay is out wide where you would expect a fullback to be. And Grealish is completely unmarked in, in like a, an internal channel with Dallow like 20 yards back and the rest of the defensive line, like 20 yards back. And so it's, it's kind of hard to say whether that was an individual error, either by McTominay to be out wide, or by one of the forwards to have engaged the press, or by Dallow to have been deep, or whether it was a systemic issue and they just misidentified that that was a pressing opportunity. There have been so many individual errors at Manchester United in the last two and a half seasons that previously you'd say it's not an individual error, that, that speaks to a systemic problem in the coaching. Um now, the systemic problems in coaching seem to be alleviated somewhat by what Eric Tang has happened. But, and there is probably a more academic way of putting it, there is a certain feeling or a certain thing that spreads across Manchester United when they go a goal down. Uh, not when they concede, but when they go a goal down. And I think this was on the big hidden question marks over that four-game winning run was United hadn't conceded first. And when things are good with United, and this has been apparent for two or three seasons now, when, when United goal up, they've got the tails up, it, it is very strange in that they suddenly remember how to pass. Uh, and they suddenly remember proper player movement, and they suddenly remember uh, correct timing and stuff. When they go a goal down, and there is the pub talk version of what I'm about to say, and I'm going to try and slightly dress it up, their heads turn, uh, and they forget their processes. And that is, that was really hard, I think, a season ago when under two diff two or three different managers, there were less processes to rely upon. So they go, oh my God, what am I supposed to do in that situation? And and they weren't necessarily sure about what to do, or they didn't necessarily have faith in what they were being told to do. I think Ten Hag is on page two of this is what you need to do. Um, and while they are trying to go, oh my God, what do I do? Uh, they're trying to do page two. The answer to what you need to do is probably on page six or probably on page 16. And Ten Hag hasn't enough time to go, right, okay, and then you've got to do this and then you've got to. Um, losing to Manchester City, fine ish. Like that, that's always going to hurt. 
because of the rivalry that's always going to hurt now because of um the access to resources and the the gap so it's not just the fact you're losing it's the fact that now you're losing to your uh i'm putting this in air quotes younger brother that has now won the lottery and and now has everything better than you do while you're sort of struggling with stuff so that's always going to hurt but i think you look at a league table you look at the calendar at the start of the season uh there are certain games in the premier league that you expect manchester united to win there's certain games in the premier league table where you go that's going to be difficult and at the moment Manchester City, this Manchester City side is one of those games where even a draw I'd count as a bonus. Um, so fine. The manner in which they lost is concerning. I did not expect them to concede six goals. I didn't concede expect them to concede that many goals in that fashion. And I think that's why Ten Hag was so angry. There's a lot of interesting things there. I... The part about going a goal down is a really interesting debacle because I think it is to some extent mental, but also to a large extent tactical. Um, first of all, mentally, I think when you're trying to implement a new style, and we we see this a lot with, or we've seen it in sort of the first two games in this game with Ten Hag, and then we saw it quite a bit with Rangnick, I think. United will come out into a match at nil-nil and play a certain way, and you'll see something kind of different from them. And then when they concede a goal it triggers this reaction of, okay, we need to score an equalizer. We need to get an equalizer by any means. And especially with the nature of the forwards that United have, I think that kind of leads to somewhat of a reversion to old habits. Um, bad decisions on the ball, trying to force actions instead of circulating the ball and maintaining control, um, overcommitting and giving away difficult chances. Basically, playing a goal down is something that in certain matches used to favor United, especially in the Solskjaer's like second season where you know they would go down and then that would incentivize committing to an extent that they weren't committing at nil nil and that would create chances that led to goals um i would caveat that with that was rarely the case against city like these big matches going down was not really a good thing ever and accordingly the approach felt different right the approach was extremely conservative in those big matches to to avoid specifically going down with the knowledge that if they conceded the game was likely over um Whereas in maybe the smaller matches, you saw United concede loads of early goals and then still end up with the three points. Um, But then I'd also say, from a tactical perspective, this team is strong at playing against teams who need a goal. Um, They're very strong at exploiting the space that is left by teams that take a lot of risks. We saw that against Arsenal. When you say this team, do you mean this Manchester United? Yes, yes. the Manchester United, both under Solskjaer and Ten Hag, I think. Um and they're also favorable to playing in sort of a defensive system where they can sit in in a settled shape and allow the other team to initiate sort of control or flow of the game. I don't know. It's once you concede five minutes in, that entire game plan and that entire way you expect the game to play out is now working against you. You don't have time or the luxury to be able to prolong the match because you prolong the match, you're taking nothing away from it. I also think, like, I've used this quite often, both on an individual basis and a collective basis when I describe United, but United are very good at using a boxer's jab, which is they, you know, they just feel out the space. There's normally 10 to 20, you know, 10 to 20 minutes per game where they're just feeling out the space, going, okay, who's strong here? Who's weak there? Where are the spaces going to appear? Um you know, is the fullback someone that shoots up and tries to close down the winger or are they someone that wants to, to, to close off? Now, that is effective to an extent against bottom half teams because the way they attack you tends to be one or two ways, you know? Um, but you can't do that against Manchester City because they've got five ways to hurt you. So the moment you figure out, okay, the fullback, you say, oh, the fullback likes to close down the wingers every time the wing gets on the ball. That doesn't matter because Bernardo Silva is going to do something. Or like you described, you're figuring out that do I press Jack Grealish or do I give give him space? Grealish is dangerous because he can do both. Um, the concerning thing for the Premier League in general isn't necessarily Haaland, but the fact that Manchester City are doing that version of the goal Manchester City used to always do when Raheem Sterling and Leroy Sane were in that team. So that sort of you know, wing a fullback, pull back to the prim- to the penalty area goal. Uh, I called it the triple click. 
or the triple tap goal if anyone plays too much FIFA. Um, so Haaland's, Haaland's final goal of that hat-trick is that goal. Uh, and it, it's the 2017-18 goal they did all the time when they were racking up 95-plus po- points. Um, having Haaland makes that goal more feasible. But... And this, this is the thing about Manchester City. I, I know when that goal is coming, but the moment De Bruyne is playing that pass, you can't stop it anymore. Um, so, you know, De Bruyne gets the, gets the ball. I'm watching the fullback overlap and I'm going, they're doing it, they're doing it, they're doing it. It's a very interesting goal, though, because uh, another key facet of that is you have the three guys, right? You have the winger, fullback, and then you have the man making the run in. But the person making the run in, there's actually often three or four of them. And what happens in this particular case is Lissandro's marking Holland, and the ball comes in across Grealish. And so Grealish, uh, or Lissandro anticipates that Grealish is going to strike it into the goal and stretches out to block Grealish, and then it rolls through to Holland. So, so there are certain things about City that scared me. One, so like right at the start when Haaland gets that header, he got great hang time on that. And I went, hang on, I thought Haaland is... I thought, hang on, I thought Haaland's meant to be not great in the air. That's weird. Um, and then, of course, he scores the goal from a set piece. So, fine. On, a, on an individual level, that's scary because Haaland's stronger than... even better than what I thought he was and I was already scared of him. And on a collective basis, that third, that, the, you know, the third goal that Haaland scored scared me. Because it's not one of great Haaland stuff, but, but the fact that City have found a way to redo the goal that they already used to damage the league a lot. City are able to hurt you in more ways than any other team can in the Premier League right now. Fine. What Now the problem is, why couldn't Manchester United shut down at least one of those methods? City don't score six if you could find an effective way to just you know stop one of the threats. Uh, now, again, one of those things that sound very simple, and I'm sure players will go, well, you try and stop all of those threats. You know, you try and stop the constant midfield runners. You try and stop the constant overloads on the outside. You try and stop the ridiculous six-foot-something striker. Um, and that's why I say it is a imperfect execution of a plan that is a little bit naive. Uh, and I, I use naive not to say, to, I think Ten Hag got it wrong, I think I can absolutely understand why Ten Hag went into the game thinking this is the plan. I can absolutely understand why he thought that was the best way to play. I can very easily see a version where three or four players from Manchester United have their Weetabix. Diogo Dalla doesn't get a yellow card in the first two minutes and things work better in the first 15 minutes. I can see all those things happening. But those things didn't happen and we should have you know a good discussion as to how far is Manchester United in this uh, Ten Hag process? I think the reason why I kind of raised the point about the um, about conceding early and United being unfavorable to playing in that state is that I think in some ways this game is difficult to draw a lot from because the plan goes out the window so early. Um, if like Foden scores in the eighth minute, for example, if he scores in the 38th minute, this probably isn't you're probably not conceding sixth just by nature of the fact that you're able to use the plan that you came into the game with for a larger percentage of the game. Uh, But I do agree with you on execution, especially uh, I think pressing them didn't work at all. Uh, There were so many situations where United pressed a city player into like, I thought a pretty good position. Um, And then the city player just does something ridiculous. Ederson being the number one where he just kind of like whips out a ball that, you perhaps don't expect other teams to be able to do. I guess it's just, it's hard to be, you have to be even more effective against these teams that can beat you in pretty much any way at any area of the pitch. And that's why the execution is being imperfect matters more in this game than maybe in many other games. Yeah. And I think the next question is, uh, and I ask this to you now, um, so Manchester, you know, whatever plan Manchester United had for, for the derby goes out the window, let's say, 10 minutes into the game. So the question for, for Ten Hag, uh, the question for Manchester United fans that are, is, do, do you let this result against Manchester City mean you change your plan? Or do you go, it's a, it's a 6-3 chasing defeat, doesn't matter. We're going to keep doing the plan next week against Nicosia and Cyprus, against Everton and against all the other teams we've got to play in October because you know there, there's there's a big game against Chelsea as well that's coming up soon so 
Ten Hag got a lot of credit in the bank because his initial plan for how Manchester United were played got chucked out after those defeats against Brighton and Brentford. And then a lot of people that had uh, some slight misgivings about Ten Hag and how Ten and what sort of person Ten Hag was went, wow, I'm really impressed by how pragmatic he is. And I'm really impressed by how he's changed. Um, and now he's lost again. And now he's lost again after being 4-0 down at half time. There are questions of, does he go pragmatic again? Or does he go, no, process. We're going to stick to the process. Um, now, what would you prefer Manchester United do? Devils in the details is probably the internet-wide discussion of, do you continue to religiously implement a system or make compromises to fix things in the short term? So I'm going to let Case answer because I think he has an answer based on the look on his face. I, I think... I've established myself as a pro process person on this podcast already. Um, I I think changing what you what first of all, I think the early goals are fixable, and those are the goals that need to be fixable. Because if you don't concede one and two, you're never in a position to concede three, four, five, six, which are like by, by that point you can visibly see after it's three nil. The, the effort levels and also the energy levels are, are way lower. And so you wind up with uh, concentration lapses and players getting back too slowly. But if you, if you fix the technical execution errors that were made defensively for the opener and for the second goal, um, you put yourself in a space where you're actually way closer to your... You're way closer to a 1-0 loss than a 6-3 loss. Um, and the tweaks aren't actually that big. Um, so while this was a huge failure, it was a huge failure that started with, uh, you know, it was an avalanche that started with a little rock falling off the mountain. Um, and I think to say, oh, but look at the avalanche. We can't fix the avalanche is to ignore that you could have stopped the rock. Um, so, so I, I'd say I'm pro process here. Um, what do you think, Eric? It's difficult to say because I think in the next few games, this specific style will not be as fatal as it is against Manchester City. Um, you've got ammonia twice, I think, in Everton, right, coming up. And I think even if you make the mistakes that you made early on against City, the odds of them turning into goals are a lot lower against a team like Everton. Um, and even even lower with a team like Ammonia. Um, you really can't make the, the mistakes again, though. Like, like some of the mis- these mistakes, most teams can can turn into goals. So, like, I agree with you, City is more clinical in, in every aspect of play, but Everton can play a 1-2 around a mispositioned fullback or pivot player. Um, and I think that's where these goals came from. Like, simple systemic things where one player makes the right decision the next player doesn't have to make the wrong decision i think what you're now describing is unforced errors yeah exactly unforced errors yeah so absolutely uh city are always going to hurt you regardless of whether or not you play a city you're always going to get a chance regardless of whether you make no mistakes because city have so many things now that you know you avoid getting humiliated by city by not shooting yourself in the foot uh having christian erickson mark Harlan on a corner that's shooting yourself in the foot uh, Ten Hag said in the press conference that was not the plan no one asked him what was the plan because I wasn't in the room <laughs> I'm joking I'm joking uh, so I think you know that's an unforced error uh, the first goal you got a warning very very early on with that double block against Scott McTominay but yeah, that, that's an unforced error you can stop and then and then you know as you described the avalanche is basically when your morale goes it's the I've watched way too much anime and I remember watching an episode of Bleach where they're fighting with swords and he says the first thing you do in a sword fight is you cut someone above the eyebrow because then blood was always trickling their eye and that way they can't properly see and then you stab them properly. That's what City did. Um, so how do you stop the eyebrow cuts so you don't properly get one in the gut is the is the thing. Now there's, again, two ways you do that and I think the interesting thing for Ten Hag is he has to balance that with Europa League and Premier League duties. Because as we saw against Real Sociedad, the the second team, shall we say, or the second unit of Man United, are not as far along in the automatisms and the processes that Ten Hag wants. Um, and there are, I'd say there's maybe two or three immediate changes Ten Hag could make to this 
starting eleven that you can say, okay, well, you lost against City, change this player, change this player, change this player, you'll probably get a better execution of a Ten Hag-esque style of football next week against Everton. Let's put you on the spot then. What are your, what are your two or three, Carl? Okay, I think if Martial is fit, I think Martial should return to, to your start. He was very night. bright in that cameo. I, like, I think the penalty might make you think, oh, it was, it was a, you know, a rebound and a penalty. It wasn't that impactful. He won the penalty, yeah. though. And he yeah. won in a very repeatable, typical Martial fashion. The, 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 the second goal where he's chasing that shot and gets his head to it is the sort of thing that Martial does infrequently. But when he does, but when he does do it, he tends to score. Um, and it's the second movement. It's it's the you know, you talk to a lot of Premier League, you talk to a lot of former professional strikers or anyone who's played in the Premier League for a bit, and they say one of the bigger differences between a ten goal a season striker and a fifteen or twenty goal a season striker is how do you move when your teammate is shooting. So uh, the thing that always pleased me about Edison Cavani was when if Bruno Fernandez had a long range shot, the moment Bruno Fernandez takes that long range shot, Cavani's running towards goal. Because he's thinking goalkeeper might spill it, might be a rebound, might be some way I can tap that in. Um, and that Martial goal is him moving on another player's shot. Uh, and at the moment, the only other player who does that is sat on the bench and wears number seven. Uh, but that's how that's how you score loads of goals. That's how you score loads of goals, and that's that's that. And Martial Martial is quick enough, and Martial is quick enough, has the closing control enough that if he keeps doing that, he will get an extra five or six goals a season. And that's what impressed. Yeah. And he looks healthy. And he looks healthy, which is... Yeah, I I also think the opposition that we're coming up against will favor Martial more than Rashford in the upcoming games. Um, I think maybe a big component of playing Rashford in this specific game is what you've seen him do to Liverpool and Arsenal and seen him do to City in past years. Um, but I think if you're coming up against a sort of more balanced portfolio of teams, you might you might choose Martial in some of those games. And in the ones coming up, it favors Martial. But yeah, other changes. My first option is you put Martial at the number nine. I would then move Rashford to the left-hand side. Um, and that is based on the teams United are playing in October. Uh, and less a comment on, on Jadon Sancho. I didn't think Jadon Sancho had a particularly good game against Manchester City. But he has had good games recently. Uh, and I think there is a time and a place for Jadon Sancho. Uh, and that might have a lot more to do with the left back than anything to might have more to do with the left back and say the uh, lack of obvious pace from Sancho rather than my comment on if I think Sancho's quote unquote good or not. So Martial's the nine, Rashford on the left. I would probably keep Bruno Fernandes as the ten for the two games against Nicosa and Everton, but there is an opportunity possibly for Fernandes to go aside and Eric to come in. Uh, I think I'd keep Anthony on the right-hand side because I would like to keep Anthony's automatisms, the thing that Ten Hag talks about. I think the I think the longer I think the longer a player stays in the first team or the longer a player trains and, and learns under Ten Hag, the more they understand page 12, page 16 and whatnot. Um, and if the if you're spending that much money on Anthony, then you've got to play Anthony's for as many times as possible. So I keep on the right-hand side. I think the midfield, Casemiro, will come in for, for Scott McTominay and you keep Christian Eriksen in that deeper role. I do admit you lose a lot on aerial duels because McTominay is is a six-footer. Um, and while he doesn't always play like a good six-footer, uh, that is useful when you're defending set pieces and whatnot. Uh, and I think, and this is again based on the teams you're going to play in October rather than a comment on his ability, I think Luke Shaw should probably come in for Tyrell Molasso because while I like Molasso's energy and endeavour, he has not got the team build-up play of Luke Shaw. Uh, that's not me saying that. That is pretty much a quote Louis van Gaal said during the international break as well. Uh, and I think, I mean, if Rafa Everan is, is injured, then then Victor Lindelof and Lissandro Martinez is a good partnership. I thought Shaw was impactful in the derby. Yeah. I mean, as much as he could have been. <laughs> I agree. I, 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 I agree with all of those. I think I, w- I would probably still play Sancho against Everton, but I see the argument for Rashford over him, especially against Newcastle, which I think is the next Premier League fixture after, after that. Um, this Everton team are not good. Uh, their goals conceded record is, is pretty 
decept uh, deceptive. Hmm. Hmm. They are All right. Okay. Just because they're not good doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Uh, and oh, absolutely. I, I agree think with that. Is Everton team aren't as bad as as many predicted them to be at the start of the season. Uh, so you know there, there were many shouts that Everton would, would be relegated or were going to teeter on the verge of being relegated. Uh, there was you know there was constant conversation about Sean Dyche being future Everton manager uh, and Frank Lampard being doomed. And I think all Lampard really has to do is get that Everton squad to perform to par, and they will comfortably be fourteenth ish at worst. Um, so while then I, I, I'm reluctant to call them good, I will say they are going to be stubborn and effective in games. Uh, I, I agree with that. I think I agree. They have more squad quality than I think people appreciated at the beginning of the season. The reason I point them out as being as as their their record being dece- deceptive is. And we're about to get we're about to become a stats podcast for for half a second. They've conceded seven goals. They've conceded fourteen expected goals. Oof. Um, which is a huge, huge difference at this point in the season. And seven conceded puts them as the best defensive record in the, the English top flight. Fourteen expected conceded puts them as the third worst defensive record in the top flight. So that's the that's the difference between getting results and not getting results. But I this, agree. This I don't, happened with the Lodge's Wolves last season yeah. as well. I don't see them going down though. Do you clear. have do you have X uh, X got for Pickford? Could you also explain to the audience what X got is? Uh, X got evaluates the quality of the shot that's taken. So it's based on the shot that's taken, the probability of it going in, um, or essentially as to say, one minus X got is the probability of the goalkeeper saving it. Pickford's doing very well right now. Yeah, so it's it's how, how is the goalkeeper performing or how many goals is the goalkeeper performing compared to, quote-unquote, an average uh, goalkeeper? Um, average is 10th place. Yeah, yeah. So, so Pickford has an insane uh, XGOT this season. He's, he's plus 0.6 per 90, which means he's saving more than half a goal over the, the expectation of an average goalkeeper per match, um, which is obviously incredible. And it's, you know, that's true performance. That's not, um, that's not Everton just getting lucky with bad finishing. However, I think it's worth noting his career numbers are basically dead average for a, a Premier League keeper. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead, Carl. That- so, so, so Everton's, def- so what you're telling me, just comparing those numbers, and I'm, I'm processing this, processing this information in real time, um, so the sentence isn't me saying this is a fact. This is my opinion. How I'm processing this opinion is Everton aren't defending as well as we think they are, but they are likely to cool off rather than completely collapse. Yes. I think you can cool. say that. Okay. I also think based on their squad nature, that it's kind of forced Lampard's hand to not play what we would associate as Lampard ball, Lampard ball from his past clubs. Like, I think they're playing a very conservative style. I don't think Lampard ball exists. I don't. I don't think Lampard ball exists. I think he has a... I don't think it exists. I think he's got a, a, a particular preference in midfielder, you know, in that he he seems to like midfielders that could do what he used to do when he was a midfielder. But I don't think beyond that he has a... Uh, he's not an ideologue. He's not a zealot. Uh, and he's got a a flexibility to him that should always keep him in... <clears throat> work i'm not going to say keep him in the premier league i'm going to say keep him in work i think the the interesting thing about frank lampard is your opinion of frank lampard the football player and your opinion of frank lampard in press conferences will affect your opinion of frank lampard in what his team is doing uh and i think and i think there's a gap between lampard in the press conference and lampard or lampard's team on the field uh, that is Interesting, perhaps surprising. So uh, I think you know, to, to go back to this, I think Manchester United are probably going to dominate possession against Everton, and the question is what they do with that possession, and also uh, you know, a problem that's going to have going to run all season is when Manchester United dominate possession and have the ball, they're going to be really, really vulnerable to that counter attack and to those transitional moments. So 
um, in those games where they're expected to have the ball a lot, what they're going to do with the ball when they score or how to, how they score and what they're going to do when they lose the ball and there's four lads up the pitch. Casemiro is meant to be the person that stops them when they've got four lads ac- across the pitch. So you bring him in. And then in terms of how you help those four lads when they're up there trying to attack, I think Luke Shaw is better at that job than Malassia at the moment. Uh, so yeah, that, that's why I think those will be. The, I think those will be the changes in terms of personnel in the weeks to come. So now the secondary question is: Do you think there's going to be change in playing style this month? Do you think that six-three defeat is going to have ten hard go? Hmm. Aaron, you want to take this one? I, I have my answer. So if you, <laughs> I'm going to say for now, no. That that would be my answer based on. I I just think one, it's one game, and two, it's one game against very one-off opposition. Um, And I think, for example, if United go get battered against Everton, I'll probably change my stance. Um, But for now, I just, I think shaking up the personnel is a good way to sort of, um, like you you pretty much nailed it, I would say, with Shaw and Casemiro. Those are the two I would have brought in as well. Um, And I think that's a good way to kind of bring, introduce a certain solidity into the side both in how United get the ball up the pitch and how United prevent the opposition from doing so. Um, and I think that would that should, in theory, go a long way towards addressing some of the issues that occurred against City. Um, so for now, I would say no. I would, I would stick with the style and try using maybe the result and the performance as, uh, as an opportunity to shake it up and, and get some new players in the setup. Um, as well, in a, in a squad in general, you want to use the whole squad. I think you'll get points where, you know, some things don't work out and other things do. And over the course of a season, you might have, you know, it, it's never a rebuild where 11 players play the entire season. Um, you always have these sort of like players coming in, players going out, rotation, different games. Like we might get battered against City and then go out on Thursday and win 6-0. Who knows? Um, so I just think it's too soon to make any like definitive changes based on what we've seen to the system um why now good quick now so this one is not a time to change but the defeat against brentford was a time to change because yeah i think the brentford game made it a like crystal clear and okay i'll start this by saying the biggest change that i think united made after brentford was the way they played out of the back um the biggest fundamental difference is the fact that De Gea is going long now into either contested uh, or or second ball situations where United are pl- are fighting for the ball closer to the middle of the pitch than playing out of the back indirectly. And I think the Brentford game made it extremely clear in a very obvious way that De Gea could not play out of the back at this level. Um, and so when that change was made, it feels like a definitive movement towards a solution that works to for this squad away from a solution that will not work for this squad whereas in the city game i think there were a lot of preventable errors i think there are players who played poorer than they could have um i think there are issues that were punished that would not go punished in other games um and i think the system that united are playing with now there's more evidence that it does work than there was with the game against brentford having won four in a row and ran, I would say, pretty good performances, especially against the two bigger teams. It feels as if we're talking about the difference between limiting your unforced errors and simply running with your known vulnerabilities. Yes. And I think that is going to be Ten Hag's real difficulty throughout the entire season. Not just not just doing that tactically, but also articulating that to a fan base. Because... Uh, and I think the next wrinkle to that is essentially what do United want to do this season, right? So there is possibly, a, there seems to be enough noise from other top four aspirants or, or potential teams that there might be a gap. I'm skeptical, but go okay, on. Okay, so it, <laughs> I'm, so I start the season. Start of the season, I thought Manchester United. You know, I thought Manchester United's best chance of qualifying for the Champions League was winning the Europa League. Um, and I've mostly held that for a while. Um, the manner in which Tottenham Hotspur and Liverpool are playing right now 
makes me believe there might be a gap for. I think the, I think there's enough disruption to Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur, and Chelsea that there might Maybe. be a gap for one other team. I think that what I think that one other team, the favourite for that is Arsenal. Uh, but I I put it to you this way: during the summer, I wrote a piece on how many you know, that basically went how many points do you need to finish in the top four, and. You know, if if you crunch numbers, you look at the data since four places got your Champions League spaces. Uh, the lowest, I think, the lowest points is is the mid sixties, and the highest one is seventy five. Like Arsenal, it's going to be closer to the seventy five than the sixty five. I think. Yeah, I I don't think you'll need. I don't think the team that finishes fourth has seventy five points. I think it might be closer to seventy one. But I think the team that finishes third will be well in the. Maybe on eight, right? So, I, like the 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 gap to get into fourth will be lower, but the gap to finish in the top three will be quite high. Um, now, you can tell I'm writing a piece in my head as I'm saying this all to you. Uh, there have been times in 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 the post Ferguson years where Manchester United have basically just gone, screw it, just just finish in the top four. Does it does not matter how we do it? it doesn't matter what style of play, whatever. Just get in the top four. Uh, and, and then they were like, oh, we did, we got in the top four. Now what? And they went, oh God, they haven't quite figured that out. Uh, and as process people, as stats nerds, whatnot, there, there is a version. I'm going to present to you two scenarios. Manchester United finished fifth, 69 points, and they're playing, and they're further along in their process of Ten Hag football. Or Manchester United finished fourth, they somehow scabbed 74 points because they got a couple more results like the Liverpool win and like the Arsenal win playing not Ten Hag football. Um, which one would you like? Whichever one puts us on a, a better long-term trajectory, which I think is the one where we compromise less. Um, so... Where do we finish in the Europa League? So, so yeah. I think the, the interesting thing about this entire season... Um, is even if things go good for Manchester United, there will be some form of compromise. And I think the change, I think the changes that happened after the Brentford defeat were needed, but they are compromises. And I think Ten Hag is the Manchester United manager in part because he's better at compromising than, say, Mauricio Pochettino or Brennan Rodgers or yeah. um, Massimo Alec. I think I think Ten Hag is is has a better ability of going. This is a long term plan, but also I'm going to pump it long to the big lad to get a couple of points on the board when I need to get points on the board. Well, I think the problem is, it really is distinguishing between, you know, if we were to play out the back the whole season, I think De Gea would be a problem the whole season, right? And I also, Case and I have discussed this a lot, I also think the fact that we're not doing that, um, not necessarily with this squad, because this squad I think would be worse off playing out of the back directly with a goalkeeper that's, that's that much of a hazard. But in general, I think... The fact that United are not playing out of the back is currently probably the biggest differentiating point between them and the other sort of top teams in the Premier League. The fact that they can't reliably convert possessions to the final third by keeping the ball and moving it through the thirds is a massive, massive issue that will sealing this team well below being able to compete in this division. Um I do think we will get better at it, though, even without playing from... Yeah, absolutely, but I think there's... like I think I actually really like Carl's book analogy. We're on page two. I do think by the end of the season, we'll be on page three, four, five, six. I don't know which one, but it's still really clear that there's way more to be put in place. And so that's why I'm, I'm slightly hesitant to micro analyze individual performances here and it's also it's also why like when we were talking about the goals we conceded against city i said well it's really easy to point out the individual errors and there were individual errors but a lot of them it's like well this could be an error from him or him or him depending on how you look at how you want to process this this situation defensively as a unit um and so a lot of this i think is time on the training pitch more like and and obviously later on in the match it became something else but and this is true about the out of possession stuff and then the in possession stuff which we're talking about right now i don't think we should get too caught up 
in our shortcomings right now because I think they'll be very different from the shortcomings we'll have later in the season, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think my point is I agree to the extent of the shortcomings that we are able to have at least some degree of confidence will be better by the end of the season. Like I think in terms of the keeper going long, I don't think I I don't have and we actually had a we actually had a 10 minute segment on this last week, right? I don't believe that a season of doing this is going to make us less hazardous playing out of the back with the current personnel. Um to the, to the extent that we have removed that aspect of the of of the tactical implementation. But for the rest of it, uh, I think you go to the point where you have confidence that you can improve um, and and confidence that you can grow throughout the season. And that's the approach that will lead to the best result next season. And it's until you're at the point where, you know, I'll go with Spurs, for example, right? Spurs signed Kane to an a, a long-term contract that freezes him in, rejected $100 million from City. Spurs are at the point in their trajectory, or or as they see it, they're at the point in their trajectory where they're not going to have a next generation of players as good as Son and Kane. So what they're doing is they're trying to maximize every point they can get out of the current season. Um, and, and that makes sense to some extent because that's the plan that they've gone with. And that's the plan that they've, I think, pretty consistently abided by over the last, you know, since Conte's come in at least. Um, whereas most other teams in this league are not in a place where... We're discussing championship windows. With the, the very the very American sports theme of are we going to be all in? Are we going to be in rebuild? Are we going to be in tanking mode? Now, uh, I think the big problem for Manchester United under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer that I don't think entirely was, was was Solskjaer's fault was Solskjaer was a very was very good at talking about rebuild. He was very good at talking about rebuild and was very good at about discussing process uh, and. You know, he was brought in as an interim manager and he was very good at, I'm going to fix a lot of this wider dysfunction so we can have a proper rebuild. Uh, and I think if you looked into the, the squad profile going into the 1920 season, the squad profile going into 2021, uh, United looked as if they were, United had a lot of, we're not going to involve ourselves in Liverpool City. We're going to wait one of these teams out to decline and then we're going to go in. We're in rebuild mode. Um, and I think you know, they finished second in, in 2021, in part because Liverpool imploded a little bit and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, great, okay, going to next summer, get Rafael Varane, get Jaden Sancho. And again, it's looking as a, we're, we're, we're getting out of rebuild mode, but we're not going to challenge yet. And I remember this very, very clearly. Uh, their first pre, pretty much their first preseason game of that season, they played QPR. And, and you know, I asked Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, congratulations on the, on the contract extension. Uh, you keep using this term layer by layer to describe your house. I went, when are we going to see the grand design? Uh, and he laughed and went, oh, you know, I think, was, I think, I think the idea is that to basically be in competition for the big trophies come spring, which if you watch football loads, uh, you know, first week of April tends to be Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, and I think quite a few people at pre-season, just after Euros, just after Sancho and, Ver- and Rafael Varane were sewn up, went, yeah, Manchester United probably won't win the league, but 80 points seems reasonable. And then a certain someone turns up and then United go very quickly from yeah, you know, rebuild mode to we're in win-now mode. And there's just there was just too, there are too many people in that squad who are not equipped for win-now mode. Uh, and now things have reorganized themselves under Ten Hag. And I think, you know, it's all about expectations. This squad cannot be in win-now mode. Uh, you know, Manchester United bought essentially five first-team players this summer. And yet all of us, I think pretty much every single Manchester United fan goes, we need two more first-team players. Like they are, yeah, they're, they are not in win-now mode. Uh, uh, and the difficulty for not just Manchester United, but any team that has top four aspirations. I, I, I include Leicester City, I include uh, Arsenal, I include West Ham in this as well, is because of the way the Europa League works and because of the way Europa Conference League works is you can get in a point um, where, and you saw, we've seen this in Leicester City, where they got to a point where they went, okay, we haven't finished fourth twice now. Um, do we build a squad that can go deep in the Europa League or do we just keep do you get a bigger squad that can, that's a better equipped to play in the Europa League, or do you further refine a smaller group of first eleven players and get and you 
properly gone for that fourth position. And I think United are in that place now. Of That's a squad there that could probably get to the Europa League semi-finals with a favourable draw. And, and, you know, get to that, you know, Manchester United get to that quarter-final stage. Everyone's going, oh, Manchester United probably should be winning this. And then you get in the Champions League spaces and whatnot. Uh, and it's the thing of, if you want to get Champions League spaces, what do you want to do when you're in the Champions League? And, and I think at no point since Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson's retired, have United had a plan for winning the Champions League. And again, really difficult thing to do. Really lofty thing to do. Even when Manchester United were the best team in Europe or on the planet, they didn't always win the Champions League. But it's the, you know, it's the, if you ever do stand-up or improv, it's the, and then what? Um, and I think there are a number of clubs, you know, the best clubs in Europe have a very good, and then what? And I think there are a number of clubs in Europe that are essentially failing because they don't have a, and then what? Juventus are in the mess they are because no one at Juventus the last three years went, and then what do you do? Um, and I think the big thing with United is, okay, we've got Eric Ten Hag. We've got Eric Ten Hag, and then what? Okay, we're, we're going to back him financially, and then what? I, I think... I think the scary thing is that based on what's been said since the transfer window closed is that the and then what is not more financial backing, uh, which goes back to your point about the the two the two the two first team signings. I think two is like the bare minimum to feel like we're up to snuff. I think for me it's three and then depth signings two. Well, ultimately. <laughs> Ultimately, it's I think it it's a matter of every team has a ceiling, and I think the ceiling is usually financial. Um, and you have to look at what is realistic within the frame. Like if we executed this perfectly, where would we be? And I think a lot of United fans expect that that would be first because of the history of the club, because of the financial stuff that we hear. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I'm not saying it's not, but I don't necessarily think that's the case. But they need a number, right? Is it, we're going to be the best team in the Premier League. After you have that number, you can go, okay, are we going to realistically get that to this season? Or or get there this season? If it's first, probably not. If it's fourth, and all we want is to finish fourth and just cap at fourth, it's a maybe, right? If it's sixth, then it's a totally yes. Like, this is the best we're going to be. We're going to finish sixth. That's fine. If not, the goal has to be to maximize how good you can be in three years time or in, or in N years time. Right. And so Spurs are at the point where they're going, we're probably not going to win the Premier League, no matter what we do. We believe we could be the third or fourth best team in the Premier League. We're going to play our cards now. Right. Arsenal have been going for years. If we keep pushing and we keep pushing and we keep pushing, we can finish second or we can finish third. And maybe they will do that this season. Right. But that's taken years of them going, we will miss top four, we will miss top six in order to build the side that can do that. Um, and, in, and in Liverpool's case, for example, I think people are often misled by Liverpool being this sort of um, team that can actually compete at that level when financially, I don't really think they can compared to teams like City and Chelsea. And them being able to do it has been through over the odds exceeding of expectations of what they can do with that budget. And also long-term thinking, where they signed these guys thinking, in 2020, they're going to be a team of 26, 27-year-olds who are among the best in their position in the world. So even with their over-the-odds recruitment and their over-the-odds uh, scouting system, they still had to look at it and go, we can build this in N years as opposed to building it now. If you look at Liverpool's, if you look at the contract expiry dates of all of Liverpool's top players, they all roughly expire at the same time. Liverpool are very mindful of their championship window. They're very mindful of this is when this version of this team is going to peak and when they're going to need to move on. And I think COVID and some other things have caused issues with Liverpool now where they've gone, ooh, our central midfielders haven't quite kicked on the way we thought. Naby Keita wasn't the Naby Keita we thought we were going to get. And now they have to change and be fluid. Um, And I think the big thing for United is they are on page one, year one of long-term process and I think the bigger difficulty is this long whatever long-term process Ten Hag will have is going to happen at a time when football I mean the concept of football is going to rapidly change on the foot so good luck you know 
good luck trying to have a reasonable projection of a plan in your first season when halfway through there's a World Cup. Uh, good luck trying to do one you know, next season. Okay, it, it's fairly linear uh, and you've got some certain stuff in there and, and it might make more sense. But then the next season, what do you mean? It's the Swiss League format. And you're like, oh God, no. Do I now try and qualify for the Swiss, Swiss League Champions League based on being the fifth highest qualifier in England and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and there's the Euros at the end of that one as well. Uh, and I th- and then I think that is the problem. Oh, I, said, pro- I think that's an outside problem. I think, you know, I, I trust Eric Ten Hag to be a very, very serious man and go, I'm not going to get these certain things away from it. But I think that is that is a, a tricky thing for all of us to gauge right now. I really enjoyed um, Jurgen Klopp's explanation of changing to a plan B that came out earlier today was like, well, I, I have no time to change to a plan B. We're just going to do plan A better. Uh, and I thought, okay, slightly ambitious com- compared, you know, based on the players you have, but I can, un- but the fact these fact considered it in terms of timing um, in a season when no one has the time, I, c- I can totally understand. Uh, and I think the, the hard thing for United, and part of this is down to the fact that they missed two Premier League games before the international break is I don't quite know what they're trying to do and what the timeline is. Uh, however, I do retain faith in Eric Ten Hag's system in a way that I haven't for a little bit. Uh, and I think that's the big thing for Ten Hag. Ten Hag's big challenge this season is making Manchester United fans think, I don't know what's going on, but I believe Eric Ten Hag has a plan for me. I agree Ooh. <laughs> to the extent that he can. To, I agree that Ten Hag is great to the extent that he can mm-hmm. rebuild. Um, I don't think that ceiling is as high as many people are going to like to swallow mm-hmm. if the people running the club don't make better decisions than they're currently making. And even now, even under a new reign or a new regime with, with new decision makers and, and new figures around the club, I still see decisions like, for example, the signing of Casemiro, where we've just gone, oh, we're going to gut it out and rebuild again. <laughs> and then gone, okay, here's a guy who, you know, you were talking about Euro 2024. Yep. What's Casemiro going to look like in Euro 2024? Yep. We have we have no frame where, like, you know, we Case and I talked about Casemiro and Caicedo, and, and the main thing was, like, if we sign Caicedo, barring fitness, he's going to be better or as good then as he is now because of his age and that's what we got with Anthony that's what we got with Malasia um that's what we got with Lissandro so why are you spending this huge portion of your budget on a player who is now in a different time frame to this one um you know that was that was a 200 million pound summer window that's the biggest window we've Mm -hmm. ever seen from United do I feel like that was the biggest step we've taken maybe but do I feel that way because the other windows were bad or because this one was exceptional and unified right it's 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 yeah it's a discussion of timelines yeah um casemiro is a good signing in the now i mean in in the now yeah. now in that he addresses problems manchester united he's he addre- he's a good signing in the now because he addresses problems manchester united have had in the past there will be a point where casemiro's presence there will be a point in the future where casemiro's presence will be a problem and it will and it, it you know that could even be if Casemiro is amazing for the entire time of his Manchester United contract. The problem could just be he's expensive, um, and that's just how football is. And I think I think the problem that, could be he's amazing, but now he's leaving. Yeah, yeah. There will be a, there will be a Casemiro related problem at some point in time, uh, but that that's just football. Um, that is just football. You know, uh, there's a, there's that really good quote of your plan re- relies on everything staying the same and only improving instead of things getting worse. Uh, and I think the interest and the good thing you've raised there Aaron, is the idea of even if everything goes right for Ten Hag and Ten Hag gets to execute his plan exactly the way Ten Hag wants it, that might not be enough to get the thing United want. And that's through no fault of his own. It's the Star, you know, Star Trek thing. You can make absolutely no mistakes and still lose. That's not failure. That's just life. Um, and that's the big challenge for Ten Hag. I think the big challenge for Ten Hag is the fact that I think he's a very, very clever manager. Um, and I think he's very, very good at tracksuit stuff. But one, 
I don't know how much good one very intelligent man can do exactly. at a club that's been as dysfunctional exactly. as Manchester United for years. And two, I don't know how much good one intelligent man can do in an environment where there's at least three other very intelligent managers running about the place. Uh, uh, So, you know... It has to be everything, right? The people behind Man City never get the attention, but they've orchestrated a pretty much near-flawless recruitment of players for five, six years. City have uh, cheat codes. Okay, fine. Uh, So comparisons to City are... I know it's a derby, somewhat misguided, whereas I think comparisons to, say, Brighton might be applicable. Uh, and I would, you know, Brighton didn't mind moving on Basuma because they already had Casado and, and he was there already. Uh, can Manchester United start doing that? Can Manchester United start selling players? Um, because, okay, Eric Bai is on loan at Marseille. He will need to move on. Okay, Alex Telis is at Sevilla. He will be need. He needs to move on, and, and like you need to start getting better at those tiny bits, uh, and. I always push back when people say, yeah, okay, they've backed Eric Ten Hag. I'm like, Woof. backing is more than just throwing loads of money at a situation. Uh, you know, one, one of my best friends, essentially, you know, they, they back me by being one of the very few voices that go, Carl, shut the F up. <laughs> they're, they're one of the, you know, I've got, I've got a friend who has a, a very different background to me and a, and a slightly different viewpoint of the world. And there are loads of times when I'm doing stuff and I ring them up or I text them and I go, that's my plan. What am I not seeing? All right, that's my plan. Is there something here I am not seeing that you see? Uh, and my, and the question is, well, I said the question is, it feels as if United don't have someone like that for Ten Hag. Like you don't get, even if you believe in Ten Hag 100%, you don't get that moment with Marco Anatovic. If someone in Manchester United going, no, Eric, no. You don't get that situation where Rabiot is being linked. If someone at United is going, I'm going to back you by saying that is a bad idea. Uh, and I think that is the next challenge for, for things above Eric Ten Hag is how do you back him, not just in terms of finances or not just in terms of, not just in terms of finances in terms of transfer fees or not just in terms of finances in terms of putting money in the academy, but also putting in checks and balances that can hold Eric Ten Hag I don't want to say to account, but essentially maximize the things Eric Ten Hag is good at. Eric Ten Hag is a tracksuit manager who, uh, even in Netherlands in his native language, was not the best at press conferences. Who's the person who stops Eric Ten Hag being surprised when someone like me pops up and goes, hey, Eric, here's something I noticed in the stat sheet. (laughs) Yeah, right. Eric Ten Hag needs someone who can go, hey, you're going to go into this press conference. These journalists are here. These journalists might ask you this. Please be aware of this. Who was the person, at, you know, it, it became quite apparent that Eric Den Hag didn't quite know the Dean Henderson situation. Debravka is brought in because Ten Hag went, oh, oh, I can't rely on Henderson coming back. Henderson really wants to leave. And it's that sort of thing. Eric Bailly is not, com- Eric Bailly is not coming back. And Ten Hag needs to know Eric Bailly is not coming back. Eric, someone needs to tell Ten Hag at some point during your squad rebuilding, you can't rely on Bayer coming back because even if he's good, he doesn't want to be here. And then, and also needs to present 10 options yeah. for him to pursue that, yeah. right? Like that was the other, like Ten Hag can't be watching every single player that Manchester United are scouting. Like it's, you know, City City signed, what was it? How many players from South America? I mean, at least one in Alvarez. Um, how are you, like, how is the coach going to be the one who's going to watch that tape and go, yeah, I want him. Um, it's it, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this summer it became like abundantly clear that he he watched the football that was relevant to the football he managed. Um, yeah, and so which that was sense. all the recruit, which makes perfect sense. Well, like, he's not a scout. He's not a scout. Um, so that was all he could give input input on from a recruitment perspective, and it caused us to massively overpay for Anthony, regardless of whether he he's very good for us or not. Um, and it probably caused us to, to miss out on, I'm, I'm certain it caused us to miss out on deals that would have improved the team in a more cost-effective way. Um, and that has to change. because It especially has to change if $200 million isn't going to be available next summer, which it almost certainly won't be. Um, or, or I, I mean, I, I sure hope he's, he's going, he went home from the match yesterday and, and turned on the TV and watched La Liga or something like that because 
<laughs> that's the only alter- alternative. Carl, this has been awesome. Honestly, I've just part of it is like with with slightly lessened hosting duties, um, both in terms of you prompting as many questions as I have, and also being able to split the two way load three ways. I've had an opportunity to kind of sit back and just enjoy this. This has been so much fun. Um, and honestly, it's great to finally talk to you on uh, on a call. Like we've, I feel like the group chat's pinging every day, um, and I'm and I'm just like popping in, but. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, seriously, in terms of holding to account and 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 backing, I think I use that group chat all the time. It's just like, here's the thing: have I got all the things right here? Um, I'm not as good a journalist as I am without a wider team around me. Some of that is the editor team at the Athletic, but also when Malaysia happened, I remember my editor walked up to me quite sheepishly and just went, "That new left back United have signed. Do you know anything about him?" And I, I like, I had Case's piece on on my laptop. I went, "Yeah, he's good." She went, what? Uh, he, he's good. Uh, I can write about him. He goes, how? I went, well, they've got Case. I've got Leah. Like, <laughs> um, and I think that's the thing. Of just the, more, the older I get and the, the longer I do anything, the more I realize auteurs don't exist. Auteurs can have a vision uh, and I can have a way of certain things look, but there is no person who does everything themselves. Um, and yeah, thank you for the group chat. I'm, I'm really pleased you got me on this podcast. I'd like to do it a bit more if possible. Um, and uh, yeah, all power to you, gents. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carl. And you're welcome back anytime. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.